public presentation since we were married last Monday, so woohoo! Um, we're really excited to get to teach this class together. It's kind of our first opportunity to do ministry together. We've been, both of us, 10 years in ministry aside from each other, and now we get to do it together, which is really sweet. Um, and we'll get more into the introductions in a few minutes, but I want to start off in prayer and then kind of intro what we're going to be talking about for the next five weeks. So Father, we just love you, and we thank you that we get to come, and we get to learn about your table and something that you left for us 2,000 years ago. So this morning as we dive into a theology of the table, I pray that your Holy Spirit would fall on us, that you would give us a deeper revelation of what it means that you poured out your body and your blood for us, Jesus, what that sacrifice means, and that you would lead us into a deeper revelation and a deeper encounter with you through this. I pray that our words, mine and Andrew and Rachel's, wouldn't be our own, but that they would be yours, God, and that they would fall on open ears, on open hearts, and on open minds, and that we would walk away from this. And every week as we come to the table, both here on a Sunday morning and in our own homes, day in and day out, that we would have a deeper, richer experience of who you are, Jesus. We pray all of this for your glory. Amen. So the idea for the table came about... Almost a year ago, Evan and I were sitting down one, sun, one day at Panera Bread, and he started telling me about some of the changes he wanted to see in New Life downtown. And one of those big changes was he said, we really want to pour into our leaders, our leaders on Sunday mornings and our meal group leaders. And as we ask so much of them, we want to increase our investment into them because they pour out so much. And we want to grow them, we want to guide them, and we want Sunday school to be for anyone and everyone, but we want it to be topics that really guide and train our leaders. So last night, if you guys got the email, he talked about it being the Theology, Biblical, and Leadership Training Academy. And so that was a little much, so he stuck with Sunday School as the name. But um, this month is the theology portion. And so we were talking, and I was like, Evan, you should do, we should do a theology of the table, because it is what our strategy here at New Life Downtown is based on. We come to the table every Sunday, as the center point, as the focus of our Sunday morning service. And then we go back out into our groups, into our meal groups, and we eat a meal together. So the table is central, and we should really focus on that. And so Evan's like, that's a great idea. But we're going to teach on Psalms this spring, (laughs) Um, which was an amazing series. If you were there for it, Stephen Todd is brilliant. But then one day, Rachel, Andrew, and I got this really exciting email saying, would you guys like to teach theology for the fall? I'm like, uh, yeah, that would be sweet. And um, he even let us pick our topic. And so I was like, well, since we haven't done the meal yet, let's talk about the meal. Can we do that? And he's like, yeah. And so I talked to Andrew and Rachel, and they're like, that sounds sweet. Let's do it. So here we are. We're going to spend the next five weeks talking about the meal. And this, I want to start off with... uh, This quote, this is from the New Life Downtown Liturgy handout that kind of just focuses us in on the role of the meal place. From the earliest Christian worship gatherings, the Eucharist has been the central and culminating moment of the Christian gathering. This is where followers of Christ remember his death, celebrate his resurrection, and anticipate his return. And this sets us up for the meal is something profoundly important. The meal is, there's something deep happening in the meal. And we want to dive into what that is. And so Glenn, in his book, uh, Discover the Mystery of Faith, says, When the people of Israel wanted to remember and celebrate God's greatest act of deliverance in their nation's history, they didn't preach long sermons or expound on the theological ramifications of the day. They shared a meal. And this was, reading this book about a year ago was a profound shaping experience for me because I'm like, that's really true. I'm sitting here at Fuller Seminary, writing long papers on one chapter of the Bible at a time, and all these theological things, and sometimes it's easy to remember, or or it's hard to remember that there's something experiential, there's something real, there's something that isn't just writing long papers. You wonder, why am I paying all this money to get something that may, may or may not always feel like it has practical implications on real life? So... Going back to the meal has been a profound shaping experience for me. And as we dive in, I want you guys to turn to Luke 24. 
we're going we're gonna to dive into the Bible and see two things in this story that will set us up for the next five weeks. So I'm going to read from the voice translation, just to make it a little fresh. Starting in verse 13, it says, Picture this. That same day, two other disciples, not of the eleven, are traveling the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. As they walk along, they talk back and forth about all that has transpired during recent days. While they're talking, discussing, and conversing, Jesus catches up to them and begins walking with them. But for some reason, they don't recognize him. Jesus catches up to him and he says, You two seem grossly and deeply engrossed in conversation. What are you talking about as you walk along this road? And they stop and they just stand there looking sad. They say, One of them, Cleopas is his name, he speaks up and he says, You must be the only visitor in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about what's been going on the last few days. Essentially, have you been living under a rock? And Jesus, in some way, was like, Well, actually, yes. <laughs> So he responds, what are you talking about? The two disciples say back to him, it's all about the man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was a mighty prophet who did amazing miracles and preached powerful messages in the sight of God and everyone around. Our chief priests and authorities handed him over to be executed, crucified in fact. We had been hoping that he was the one, you know, the one who would liberate all Israel and bring God's promises. Anyway, on top of all of this, just this morning, the third day after the execution, some women in our group really shocked us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but they didn't see his body anywhere. Then they came back and told us they did see something. A vision of heavenly messengers. And these messengers said that Jesus was alive. Some people in our group went to the tomb to check it out. And just as the woman had said, it was empty. But they didn't see Jesus. Jesus responds to him, Come on, men. Why are you being so foolish? Why are your hearts so sluggish when it comes to believing what the prophets have been saying all along? Didn't it have to be this way? Didn't the anointed one have to experience these sufferings in order to come into his glory? Then he begins with Moses and continues, prophet by prophet, explaining the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures, showing how they were talking about the very things that had happened to Jesus. About this time, they are nearing their destination, and Jesus keeps walking ahead as if he had no plans to stop there. But they convince him to join them. The two disciples say, Please, be our guest. It's getting late, and soon it will be too dark to walk. So Jesus accompanies them to their home. When they sat down at the table for dinner, he takes the bread in his hands. He gives thanks for it. Then he breaks it and hands it to him. At that instance, two things happen simultaneously. Their eyes are open so that they recognize him. And he instantly vanishes, just disappears before their eyes. They look at each other and say, Amazing! Weren't our hearts on fire within us while he was talking to us on the road? Didn't you feel it all coming clear as he explained the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures? So they get up immediately and rush back to Jerusalem, all seven miles where they find the eleven gathered, the eleven plus a number of others. Before Cleopas and his companion can tell their story, the others have their own story to tell. The, disi- the Lord has risen, the other disciples say. It's true, he appeared to Simon. Finally, the two men report their own experience, their conversation along the road, and their moment of realization and recognition as he broke the bread. There are two things that I want to highlight that will set up the coming weeks for us. And the first is, there's a revelation of Jesus that, when, that happens when we break bread in his name. When the disciples finally get to share their experience with everyone, they talk about their moment of revelation When Jesus breaks the bread, his identity is revealed. The men are left in awe. But this moment is available to us as well, both on Sunday mornings at the Lord's table and in our homes throughout the week. This revelation of Jesus is why we come to the table every week and worship. So New Life Downtown's vision statement is blessed, broken, and given. A couple months ago in his sermon series, Broken and Given, Glenn restated this vision as the Lord's table. Our Sunday gathering is blessed. We come to the table every week and recognize that in him, through his sacrifice, we are blessed. We go back into our homes, the common table, and we are broken. And as broken people, we are given to one another. 
And finally, preparing a table. As a blessed and broken community, we prepare a table for others to join us. So I've seen a lot of vision statements in a lot of churches over the years, having worked in churches for the last 10 years, but none of them base their vision and their strategy around the meal. It's always, we're going to go reach more people for Christ, or we're going to grow two times this year, where all of these different things, and those are uh, more or less good, but none have I seen pick up this theme of the meal. And yet the theme of the meal is a common theme throughout the Bible. The institution of communion actually happened during the Passover, which stretches all the way back to when Moses was in Egypt delivering the Israelites from the Egyptians in the Exodus. And for, thousand, for over a thousand years, they've celebrated this meal. And then as they became a community and grew from just this wandering people into an established community within Israel, they started having feasts. So they were scattered all throughout the land, but three times a year they come back to Jerusalem to eat. They have their festivals, and the primary focal point of their festivals is to eat, and that is a part of worship for them. <clears throat> so having a, an entire strategy um, of the Lord's table, the common table, our table, and preparing a table for a church is pretty unique, and it's pretty awesome because it's something that does carry from the very beginning of the Bible, all the way through Revelation, culminating in the wedding feast. So N.T. Wright cheekily remarks that Jesus, in speaking of his death in Revelation, speaking of his death, he did not give us an atonement theory. He gave us a meal. So he's, Jesus is sitting there at the Last Supper, and he's been with his disciples for three years now. And he gets one final act with them. Instead of teaching about his commute his kingdom, instead of talking more in depth about his sacrifice that he's about to give, instead of doing any of this stuff, he sits down and he eats with them. And he culminates all of the prophets leading up to him, saying, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. This is the new covenant. It's not the declaration of independence. It's not something that all the disciples signed. It's not this long document that they drafted. It was blood and bread or wine, depending on your theological orientation. So the second thing that happens when we come to the table is something deep that we can't always articulate. When Jesus disappears from them, they turn to one another and say, didn't our hearts burn within us? Wasn't something going on that we couldn't quite put our finger on? They felt it, but they couldn't express it. Think about some of those moments in your life whether it's the experience of a roller coaster ride or falling in love, we feel things that we can only later find words for. That's the way it is with the table. There's so many deep things happening all at once that we can't always articulate. We can only experience it. But that's the beauty of communion. Throughout this month, though, we do want to bring some articulation to it. We couldn't hope to shed light on everything that communion does and means, nor do we hope to make the table a mental exercise and take away from the beauty of the experience. But Rachel, Andrew, and myself all have found that by studying the table, coming and getting a deeper revelation of what that means, it becomes more beautiful, and we look forward to it more and more each week. So that's our two, two things. There's revelation of Jesus that happens when we come and break bread in his name. And there's something deep that is going on that we can't always articulate. And so those are the two basis points as we come and spend the next five weeks together. And real quick, we want to go over a couple of the goals that we do hope you guys walk away with after having sat in here for a couple of weeks. The first one is an articulation of what is happening when we come to the table. What all is going on? Theologians for centuries have debated not only on the nature of communion, but also what's going on, what it accomplishes. And it's pretty fascinating to read. Um, there, some theologians go so far as to say it creates an entirely new economic reality which I don't generally, when I think of economic reality, I think of stock markets and um, trade and all of that stuff. I don't generally think of communion. And yet, as I read his stuff, it was pretty compelling and actually started to make sense. Um, I don't know if I fully buy it, but we'll get there in a couple weeks. Um, there's all sorts of other things that are happening, both on a vertical level between us and God and us in a community as it creates a new community. So we want to bring some level of thought to that. The second thing is that we want to bring encouragement for your walk as you come into community with others. There's a powerful, 
profound, horizontal dimension to communion. It's not just about us and God, but it's about us and being the people of God. It's about you and I together pursuing God and experiencing his revelation. So we want to encourage you in that as you come together on Sundays and pray with one another and partake of the elements. And we also want to encourage you as you break bread in your homes that this happens. And the last part is, the last goal is a deeper understanding of the history and the importance of the Lord's table. Andrew's going to hit a ton on the history next week, week, which I'm super excited about, because there actually has not been a more controversial um, and dividing thing. The very thing that was supposed to unite us as a body has actually been one of the most divisive in history. And the views on it are pretty wide, coming from the Orthodox, the Catholic tradition, and even pretty broad within the Protestant tradition. And so Andrew's going to teach some phenomenal stuff on that. (laughs) Um, And then I'll teach on why, what happens when we come to the table. But all of this leads to a deeper encounter with God as you come to the table. But rather than just me standing up here and talking about it, I want to take time to introduce the other teachers because it's not just me. We get to be a teaching team. And um, so we want to talk about... We want you guys to get to know us as we get to lead you the next four weeks, but we also want to talk about our experience with communion. So first, we're going to start with Andrew, if you want to come up and introduce yourself. Can you guys hear me okay? Is this on? Not much for microphones, even in this tight of a room, so hopefully you can't hear it. It's soft. We'll work on that. We'll work on that. One of the reasons we wanted to take some time to introduce ourselves to you guys today is we felt like it was important to give some context towards where we're all coming from when we have this discussion. As Brian mentioned, historical views or even present views of what's going on at the Lord's table are fairly broad. uh, And lots of pious Christians in different places across the globe have different understandings of what's happening at the table. And um, you still can't hear in the back? All right. I'm going, to, I'm going to dive into telling kind of part of my story and some of my interest in, is that better? Is that better back there? Awesome. Awesome. So here's a little bit of context, I think, from, for how I see the table, um, not only theologically but experientially, because I think if we're honest with ourselves, both of those things govern the way that we come to the table. Our experiences guide the things we're comfortable with, and the, the ways in which we've been educated also guide sort of our views of what's happening. Um, so real quickly, kind of in the last five years, um, I'm a recent transplant to Colorado Springs, just started going to New Life downtown about five months ago. So I've been really grateful to the church family here that's kind of grafted me in, uh, thankful to Brian and Rachel and Evan, amongst others, for really welcoming me into this family. Um, I came from Chicago, and when I was living in Chicago, I was teaching at the Moody Bible Institute. It's a smaller Bible college there. And then I was also working for a magazine called Christianity Today. Um, after kind of some of my involvements there, I decided that I wanted to do more stuff with books and kind of shape thought through books and culture that way. And uh, recently came on board with a company out here called David C. Cook. And we publish a lot of Christian books. Um, so I really enjoy nerding out about ideas, but also love people and have frequently in my life felt kind of caught in between those two spheres. Um, in terms of just growing up, uh, till I was about 10 or 11, my parents took me every single Sunday to an Episcopalian, a little Episcopalian church in, in Cleveland, Ohio. And I can't say that uh, I ever came to a place of saving faith in that church because there's just different ways in which the gospel is preached in different places. Um, But I did develop a strong appreciation for the spiritual feeling that was in the liturgy. I'm not quite sure I would have been able to put that into words as an 11-year-old, but did really enjoy kind of the structure and the rhythm and the liturgy. Um, And it wasn't until later when my parents moved and we kind of landed in a non-denom, larger, Bible-based church that we came to Saving Faith, my parents first, and then I did. And so part of that experience of coming to faith was actually a leaving of a liturgical setting. So that was always confusing to me, and especially is now sometimes as I try to process through my experiences here at New Life Downtown, is because the strongest faith experiences I had initially were at a place at which a lot of those liturgical traditional elements had been pretty stripped. Um, It wasn't until I was a student at Moody and then later at Wheaton 
when I got really interested in, in church history, and that's what I did all of my master's work in, and I was digging around and digging around, and I was like, holy cow, this stuff actually has a lot of richness to it, and if it's done in a spirit-filled church like New Life Downtown, it actually really gives a lot of life and deep richness of symbolism and trajectory and history, connection in a Hebrews 11 sort of way, you know, this great cloud of witnesses that we're reaching back into every Sunday and communing with this large trajectory. Um, so, yeah, thanks, thanks for the shout-out back there. Amen. 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 So when I was attending uh, Wheaton and doing all this work, kind of having a little bit of a crisis of faith, trying to figure out what exactly it looked like to do church well, I started attending an Anglican church in the western suburbs of Chicago for about five years. So prior to coming to New Life Downtown, I was in a very Anglo-Evangelical sort of environment similar to this. Um, And so landing here has felt very, very comfortable um, and very, very safe, I guess if that's the right word, spiritually. Um, A safe place for me spiritually when I've come to Colorado Springs because I appreciate the richness of the liturgy, of the tradition, of the Lord's table. Um, Even the way that our service functions here, I think you'll notice um, that it kind of moves in an M-like sort of shape. And what I mean by that is that the first sort of high point or crescendo, if you're a music sort of guru, the crescendo is the proclamation of the gospel, the reading of the gospel. And actually, even though Glenn is a phenomenal preacher, he'd be willing to say that kind of the backside of that coming down is some preaching and teaching and the reception of the word. And then the next high point in the service is actually the Lord's table. And then we decrescendo back off of that. And so I think experiencing those things, some of those things loosely here and some of those things loosely at my other church home, I became really fascinated with what exactly, not only what exactly is going on at the table, but how it connects us to one another and how it connects us to God. So I think that's part of what we're hoping to dig into with you guys here. And I think we're all willing to admit, all three of us, that we see things slightly differently because of our experiences and because of the way that we've been shaped. Um, but I think that's going to be a beautiful part of the conversation because I'd be willing to guess that there are 50 people in here and maybe 50 different views on what's happening at the table. So it'll be really interesting for us to dig into more discussion-oriented, more conversational, I think, is kind of what we're hoping for. So that's a little bit about me uh, and a little bit about my passion for this conversation. And I want to make sure I hand it off to... Rachel. All right. This is really fun. We're really excited to do this. Um, So I'm going to share with you a little bit about my story. Um, I grew up in Steamboat, uh, a little ski town up in the northwestern corner of Colorado. Um, And Steamboat's not really a Christian community, (laughs) I would say. Uh, If any of you have spent much time in mountain towns, you know that's kind of uh, the way it goes there. Um, but my parents had met there and fallen in love there. Um, they're both from Minnesota. Uh, my dad grew up Lutheran, and my mom grew up Catholic. And so um, by the time they had met each other, they had both walked away from faith altogether. Um, they were both parts of part of big families and um, were just kind of, I think, um, just pushed away from the faith because of a lot of the things that they'd experienced. Um, And when they met and got married, both sides of the family, like my dad's and my mom's, were a little angry that one was marrying a Lutheran, one was marrying a Catholic. You know, it was just kind of funny. Um, And so then they moved back to Steamboat after living in Minnesota and um, reconnected with some old friends who invited them to this little Bible church um, in Steamboat. And that is where they both met the Lord. Um, and then started attending this little denominational church, and that's the one that I grew up in. It's called Uzoa. Um, And at Uzoa, liturgy wasn't really part of our weekly routine. Um, We took communion once a month. I had no idea what the creeds were until coming to college. Like, I just had no idea what um, the significance of liturgy was and tradition. And, and just because of my parents' experience, had kind of a bad taste in my mouth as far as tradition went um, in the church. And so I thought it was hollow and empty. Um, I was all about, you know, worship and digging into scripture and didn't really pay attention to tradition. And so then came down here for college um, and started leading Young Life and have been working for Young Life for the last like eight and a half years. Um, and that's been a really incredible experience for me um, in, in just, 
I think, number one, um, learning how to be a woman in spiritual leadership, which I think is super important, um, and, and also just in shaping my own walk with the Lord as I'm teaching kids what it means to follow Jesus. Um, so if you don't know much about Young Life, you should look it up. It's an awesome organization. Um, and so then, uh, a couple of years ago, um, started thinking about going to seminary. And <laughs> what are you laughing about over there? There we go. There's a picture of me and Brian at our wedding on Monday. <laughs> yeah. Um, so started thinking about seminary, and then in 2012 decided to just bite the bullet and take out some student loans and started going to Fuller, which is where I met Brian. Um, yeah, and so it worked out great. Um, and as I was learning more about church history and tradition and then started coming to New Life downtown, uh, a similar experience to Andrew, just started learning about the richness of church tradition and liturgy and specifically the Lord's table and had just this incredible, I think the Lord's just been bringing me on this really sweet journey of learning about that and how important it is for the church today. I think after attending New Life for the last 10 years, um, a lot of my experience with the Lord was based on, well, that just that experience. Um, and so attending seminary and really digging into history has uh, enlivened my perspective um, on what it means to be a part of the kingdom. So um, that's a little bit about my story. As far as the common table goes, um, that's actually pretty significant too. So my dad passed away when I was 11 years old um, of a heart attack. And, and he was a chef. And so food was a big deal in our family. And when he passed away, uh, I mean, we felt the loss, um, not just in the kitchen and at the table, but across the entirety of our lives. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, I'm the oldest. And, and so my mom, my dad never let her cook. <laughs> and so when he passed away, my mom had to learn how to cook. And turned out she was pretty good. And um, so food just became a unifying thing in my family um, and, and was a really beautiful time for us to cook together and eat together. Um, my brother ended up becoming a chef. That's what he does now. Um, and so food is a love language in the Miller family. And, and we love breaking bread and making it together. And, um, and I think what's been cool, too, about my experience with Young Life is we take meals really seriously at camp with kids. These are kids who don't necessarily know the Lord that are coming to Young Life and coming to camp with us. And so we like to give them a family-style meal experience at every meal they have at camp. And so we sit at round tables, and food is served to us on platters, and we pass it around, and we're able to look each other in the eye and, um, and, ju- and just enjoy being served and serving one another um, and that's just an experience that I don't think the average kid gets much these days. Um, usually kids come home from a ton, a ton of practice or other activities they're doing after school, and their parents have already eaten dinner, and so then they just go warm up a plate in the microwave and go do homework and go to bed. And sharing a meal isn't a part of their daily experience. And so we just value that so deeply in Young Life, which I think is incredible. Um, and just think that the common table is such a sweet place for the Lord to show up um, and think that it's such a fun way uh, that New Life Downtown um, tries to create and foster and develop community. Uh, so that's all I have. I'm going to pass it off to my hubby. Woo-hoo. Thanks, babe. Oh, yeah, you didn't need this. So I am a born and raised native of Colorado Springs, one of the few and very proud but I grew up here going to church probably about twice a month. And any day that we could get my parents to make pancakes instead of going to church was a win. Didn't hate church, but pancakes on a Sunday morning were a lot better. And so in high school, I actually ended up, me and my best friend were working together. We pretty much lived together every day of one summer. And one Saturday night, I was like, hey, can I crash at your house tonight? And he's like, uh, yeah, but I have to go to church in a while because I haven't been. And I was like, well, I haven't been to church in a long time. I'll go with you. So we end up at New Life Downtown that mo- Not New Life Downtown. New Life Up North uh, that morning. And for the first time, I think, that I could ever remember, I enjoyed going to church. And so the next week, I was like, hey, can I go with your family to church? And he's like, yeah. 
And so just start going every week. And that's where I met Christ 11 years ago, was at the New Life Northern Campus on a summer retreat. But up there, they used to celebrate communion on the fifth Sunday of every month. So, like, November has five Sundays. So at the end of November, they would celebrate communion. This ends up being four times a year. Yes. Um, As a result, you never get a deep understanding of what communion is. It's always like, oh, this is that thing you do once every three months. You eat some stale wafer with grape juice. That sounds amazing, but never really, never really understood the significance, never had a profound way of shaping me. So I went off to college and got involved with some churches there. After I graduated, I started working at a uh, very charismatic church, and we had something called Open Communion. And down front, we had the altar with the worship team, and then on either side, we had communion. And at any point during the service, you could come down, whether by yourself or with your family, and take communion. And it was incredibly powerful because you could take it on your own terms. But it was also missing something because in a very charismatic fashion, it was very individualistic. Taking it on your own terms was nice and unique, but it was also like, this is about me. This is about my experience. This is about what's happening with me. And if I don't want to take it, or if I'm not ready, or if I don't feel this, or if I don't want to talk to Rachel or Andrew or pray with my friends, I can just go down and partake of the elements on my own, bless them. They're consecrated up at the beginning of the service, and then I just take them and move on. Um, But having it there available and a visual representation every week started stirring something in me. And so then as I moved back down here to Colorado Springs, I started attending Fuller Seminary and simultaneously New Life Downtown launched. And it was a fun experience because I got to learn, start learning a lot of deep, rich theology along with coming to the table every single week. And um, I am a, the thing that led me to Fuller was that I became a huge reading nerd when I became a Christian. It's actually a unique part of my testimony is that I'm not sure I ever read a full book until I became a Christian. And I started reading voraciously. And especially coming out of an experience that was awesome in seeing God move and seeing the Holy Spirit move at the church I was at, I knew there was something missing. Um, I knew that there was something deeper and something that I had an experience with Christ that, it, that wasn't the full breadth of who God is. And so I was like, I think I want to study this. Um, I really felt like God calling me to that, and so he led me to Fuller. I didn't know they had a campus here in the Springs, but they do, and it was amazing. And it's also where I met Rachel, so... I'm incredibly thankful for Fuller to walk out with a degree and a wife. And a wife. Um, But over the last year, seeing that the meal was a central piece in ancient Israel. It was a central piece in, um, in the life of Jesus. The Gospels and Acts are filled with meals. They're always eating. They... This is why one of them, I think it's in John's Gospel, people look at Jesus and be like, John the Baptist didn't eat, and he's kind of weird. He lived off of um, locusts, and that's, that's really odd. But you're kind of a drunkard and a glutton, <laughs> Jesus. Every time we see you, it's like we feel like you're eating and drinking with people. And Jesus is like, yeah, pretty much. So um, as I've been studying that every week, my first class was on the Gospels and Acts, and our professor had an entire three-and-a-half-hour session on the meal and mission of Jesus. And he talked just for a long, long time about how the meal was a central piece. Luke picks up on this and carries it into Acts to the point that after the Holy Spirit falls and they form the New Testament community, that first community, there were four things they did together. They listened to the apostles' teaching. They prayed together. They had fellowship, they hung out with one another and learned how to like each other, and they ate together. And he specifically mentions that. And so this has been growing in me for the last year of my experience with communion. I get to come every week to the Lord's table. I get to come every week, whether it's a meal with Rachel or a meal with my family, a meal with my friends, and begin gaining a deeper appreciation and a deeper encounter with Christ as I do that. So I was really excited to teach on this. And that's why 
we're going to do this for the next five weeks. And this is at our wedding on Monday, and I chose this picture because communion has become such a profound part of mine and Rachel's walk with God that we decided to make this the very first act as a married couple that we did. So right, a, right after the marriage vows, we took communion. Matt led us in a wonderful worship song. It was freezing cold outside and snowing. <laughs> but we took communion together as everyone at the wedding as an act and a proclamation that Christ is center of our relationship, Christ is center of our lives, and that we want to celebrate his broken body, his shed blood, as our very first act of being one together. So, and Carson, who attends New Life Downtown, took that awesome picture, and Andrew's picture. So props to him. Uh, Real quick, Andrew's going to lead us in a discussion here in a minute on communion, but I want to do two housekeeping things. The first is our schedule. So today, we're going to do intro and discussion. Then next week, Andrew is going to lead us in the history of communion. And he'll hit on a lot of different views. He'll hit on the developments throughout history, whether coming from being an entire meal down to just a sacramental act. Then the next week, I will hit on the Lord's table. And I'll really focus in on, so here's all the different views. Here's the history of communion. What actually happens when we come to the table together? Despite your view, what actually happens with the presence of Christ when we come under him? We come to the table. That's going to flow into Rachel leading us into a discussion on our table because the Lord's table isn't just left there into this confined little section of a Sunday morning service, but it flows into every part of our lives, most specifically the meals that we eat every day in our homes and the meals that we lead as meal group leaders. And then the last week, we will wrap up anything that we have, and then we'll take any questions that are kind of bigger questions that we haven't been able to answer within service, and we'll carry those over to the fifth week. Which brings me to the next little side note, questions. At any point during our sessions uh, today and throughout the next four weeks, stop us and ask questions. You can raise your hand, you can just start talking, you can do whatever to get our attention, and we would love to field your questions. If we can answer them right there, if any of us can answer them, we will. Um, but if it's a long answer, um, we'll, we'll let you know and we'll hold off till week five so that we can do a little more research and answer it adequately. So feel free to stop us at any point. And with that said, I'm going to invite Andrew back up to lead us in a discussion. Thanks, Brian. Too many things, not enough table, I think, right now. Uh, Let's see how this goes. Yeah, we're good. So to kind of focus our discussion of the Lord's table, you know, one of the things I was thinking about is trying to center it on a passage, which seems obvious. We we love the Bible here. We want to talk about that and get that really at the heart of our discussion. Um, Each of the Gospels have slightly different accounts um, with with many things in Jesus' life, but also some of the wording and the rendering of the Lord's table, uh, not in the Eucharistic sense, but in the Last Supper. Uh, I was trying to think about the importance of the Last Supper. Like I said earlier, I recently moved here from, uh, from Chicago. I lived in Chicago for 10 years. And when I was leaving, a group of my friends said, hey, let's have, let's have dinner. Let's go out to dinner together to kind of celebrate our time. Uh, we'll share stories. We'll catch up. Uh, we'll reminisce together. And that was a really special evening for me. And I remember in the middle of that time thinking, man, like, I, I feel... I feel so much emotion about these people that I've shared life with. I want to share so many things with them. How do I, how do I leave, even though today is really different with like Facebook and email and text and call, what are the last conversations I want to have with these friends that have been deep spiritual friends for so long? And I think one of the reasons that um, communion is of such a special emphasis for the church is that this is Jesus' last moments with his disciples. His best friends for the last three years who he's done public ministry with, this is the last conversation that he has with them all together in one room before his hour of great trial. So I wanted to direct our attention to Luke. If you have your Bibles. I thought about doing a sword drill, but I think we'll skip that. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. Chapter 22, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. A lot hinges on this next verse, so pay attention. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at this table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it would be that was going to do this. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time today just discussing that verse 19. So many of the historical uh, differences or even present differences we see in practice really hinge on how that verse is interpreted. I think there's a lot of questions there. The way we read that verse is an exegetical question, meaning how we interpret and why Jesus' words there. It's a Christological question, as maybe we'll see next week. And by that I mean, what is happening at the table, if it is representative of Christ, how does that fully capture his humanity and his divinity? How do we talk about that well so that we do justice to both aspects of Christ's person, the man Jesus of Nazareth and the God-man Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus of Nazareth. Finally, uh, it's a philosophical question. And what I mean by that is that different philosophical systems throughout the ages have really influenced heavily how people read that passage. I think we'll even see next week with some of the Reformers Differences in thought and their education influenced them strongly as to how they read that passage. And finally, it's an experiential question. Uh, and by that, what I mean is we all bring our own experiences to the table. Not, the first time, not only the first time we were there, but every single Sunday, what's been happening in our life that week, that morning, that moment, affects how we experience the Lord's table. So what I wanted us to do, uh, I wanted us to do a little bit of an exercise together before we departed today. And I'd love us to get into groups of about four, uh, you know, give or take a few. And this is really the question that I want us to consider. What, do, what did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? What is Jesus saying when he says, this is my body? He's holding the bread. What is he trying to communicate to the disciples? Secondly, he says, do this in remembrance of me. What does that mean? Everything kind of hinges upon how we read those two statements. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time before we dive into different views and different ideas, really trying to flesh out what we actually believe those things mean right now. There's no good or bad answers. You know, don't feel like you have to pull out your smartphone and start fact-checking stuff. Just naturally, as you are, as you came, go ahead, get up, move around. This meets that goal of getting to know one another. It's okay to talk to people you don't know. 90% of the people in here are pretty nice. So the odds of finding them are high. Yeah. So that's your task. I'll call us back together in a couple minutes here, and we'll have a more large group discussion. But do this in remembrance of me. This is my body. What does that mean? All right. Show of hands, who's got it figured out already? Anybody? Nobody. Nobody? So let's kind of... I don't know if that's me or you. It's all the adamantium in my body. <laughs> let's kind of come back together. We're going to have a, a, more of a large group discussion, just kind of, just kind of flush some of these ideas out throughout the room. Um, I imagine in your conversations that you guys were kind of digging in, a couple different thoughts, a couple different perspectives may have even surfaced in your group, uh, and that's totally fine. And here, to be completely honest... Part of what we're trying to do a little bit today is sort of problematize this a little bit. So don't, don't get too startled if we don't kind of land on something fully today. But I want us to get to a point where we're all kind of like, oh, I can kind of see how there are some questions about this. So just here in the room, if anybody's willing to kind of just chirp out a one or two sentence or three or four sentence, you know, this, this is kind of what we, our discussion looks like in our group. That'd be really helpful. And Brian will come find you. I'll shout your answers back in just so the podcast picks it up. Anybody brave enough to share? Here we go. Right. 
That's awesome. So she talked about how it represents Christ's body being broken and poured out on the cross and the symbolism in there and that he also broke it on his own accord, not um, someone didn't break it for him, but he willingly chose to have it broken. Thanks. Anybody else? So with everything leading up to that moment, there's a lot of insecurity going into that room and then this question of why, what does this mean? Why do you say this is your body? That's good. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, one of the things we kind of chatted about a little bit over here is you know, this meal wasn't just something that Jesus just made up on the spot, right? There's a lot of history, a lot of tradition behind that that he's kind of playing into intentionally. And so I think your point is really valid. The disciples may have been like, yeah, we get this. We've done this you know, every year, our entire lives. But then Jesus is sort of reappropriating it, changing it, calling it the new covenant. So I'm sure they were kind of raising their eyes a little bit. What exactly does that mean? You know, how are you changing the Passover meal, which we're so familiar with, and making it this new covenant? So I think there probably were a lot of questions like that in the room. Anybody else? Yeah, up in the back. Totally. So his statements in this act ties it back to a concrete, real living Jesus, an experience of his humanity. Yeah, I think that's a great point and or question sometimes for me. Because I look at this phrase, this is, is my body. I'm not entirely sure what that means sometimes. Jesus is holding the bread. I think that's part of the discussion we're going to have a little bit next week. So did anybody in their group care to comment or get into in discussion you know, what Jesus was saying when he said, this is my body? I think that's a big question for us. Yeah, so there's that kind of ancient future component to this meal, right? There's a looking back, there's a present when Jesus is present with the disciples, and there's a, a significant looking forward, which I think you were trying to hit on, if I'm restating you correctly, if that's fair. Uh, so there's a very significant sort of ancient future component to this sentence. So I mean, there's just so much loaded into these two phrases that I think we're really going to be able to unpack in the next couple of weeks. I think we have time maybe for one more comment, if anybody wanted to share and if not, I had a couple closing ideas before I handed over to Brian. Yeah.
Totally. What was your, what was your name? Seth. Seth. Seth was saying that you know, he had the opportunity to attend uh, a kind of a Passover Seder that was put on in a very Jewish fashion. Um, and he was, he was wondering about the different cups and the bread and the elements uh, and, and the symbolism there. I think that raises another good question for us as Christians, as New Testament believers, that have entered into this New Testament, this new covenant. What does it mean for us to engage, and we probably won't dig into this too much, but what does it mean for us to engage in these symbols of the old covenant? How do we handle those with care and also handle those in a way that have a sort of spiritual richness and depth for us? So there's so much to talk about here. I know I've said that a couple times, and I appreciate you guys kind of giving me some of that feedback. Because as we go into conversation next week and we start talking a little bit about the history and views on the Lord's table, those conversations really centered around this. You know, different scholars have read, this is my body, in so many different ways. And I think it'll be fun for us to dig into that and then kind of think about what's going on at the table, even here on Sunday mornings when we celebrate communion together as a body. So thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate that. I'm going to hand it off to Brian. He's going to close us in prayer. Awesome. Uh, real quick, before I close us in prayer, just wanted to put up here on your sheets, on your handouts, there's a list of resources that... Rachel, Andrew, and I have learned a ton from. I'm not going to go through them all today, but you have them there. We'll cite any additional ones, but these are some ones that have been influential to us as we've been learning and specifically studying this topic. Uh, Some are completely focused on the meal, and then some, like Theology for the Community of God, has a really rich set of about 10 pages within a six, 700-page book that is specifically on communion. So um, it hits a lot of other phenomenal topics, but as we close today, I'm going to have, I have a liturgical prayer that we're going to recite together. This is from a book called Our Common Prayer. And essentially, it's a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that's been reappropriated for more modern times. So I'll, I'll give us a quick start and we'll all recite it together and then we'll be done. Almighty God, Holy Father, we have sat at your feet, learned from your word, and eaten from your table. We give you thanks and praise for accepting us into your family. Send us out with your blessing to live and to witness for you in the power of your spirit through Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Amen. Happy Sunday, and we will see you next week.